from Two Keto LLC, it's the Obesity Code Podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. You know, Dr. Fung, Megan Ramos, and the entire IDM staff are constantly answering questions about fasting, ketogenic eating, and their program. Since we started the Obesity Code podcast, the volume of these questions has increased dramatically. So this week, we picked a few very popular questions for them to answer. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. Before we get started with the Q&A, I need to tell you where these questions come from. Richard Morris, that's me with the Aussie accent, my Two Keto Dudes co-host and I, operate a free ketogenic forum with about 10,000 members where you can search for answers and direct questions to Jason and Megan. You'll have to register with the forum to ask a question, but it's free and easy. Just go to questions.obesitycodepodcast.com. Our first question is from Elaine, who says, I see a lot of type 2 diabetes in remission, but is insulin resistance a forever till death do us part problem? The short answer is no. Insulin resistance is not forever. But in order to explain, Dr. Fung unpacks the term insulin resistance and what it actually refers to. The normal action of insulin is to store food energy. That is, when we eat, insulin goes up, we store food energy, and we store it as glycogen in the liver or body fat. Glycogen is how animals store glucose. Starch is how plants store glucose. So there's glycogen and there's body fat. So we store food energy as either sugar or fat. When you eat, insulin goes up, tells the body to store food energy. At the same time, it also tells the cells of the body to use this sort of circulating glucose because there's lots of food energy coming in. So the liver and the heart and the kidneys and the skin and the muscles, they don't need to draw down their reserves. They should use the food energy that's coming in. So when insulin goes up, the glucose that's in the blood goes into the muscle cell, for example. So what insulin resistance refers to is the fact that for a given amount of insulin, that glucose is not going into the muscle cell. And the question is why? What we know is that this is caused by fatty deposits within the liver and the muscle. So fatty liver and also fatty muscle. Fat stored in muscle cells is called intramyocellular lipid accumulation. Intra meaning within, myo meaning muscle. Basically streaks of fat in the muscle. So there's not supposed to be fat in the liver and there's not supposed to be fat in the muscle. But you see it. When you see that, you know you have insulin resistance. The question is what causes it to accumulate. For many years, people thought dietary fat caused fatty liver and fatty muscles. But this is not true. 
dietary fat doesn't go through the liver at all. It goes uh, into the intestines where it's absorbed directly. It does not go into the liver, but it gets absorbed as something called chylomicrons, which goes through the lymphatic system, which then gets picked up through the fat cells. So the, the dietary fat actually gets stored into the fat cells almost directly and doesn't go through the liver. So eating fat doesn't cause fat accumulation. What about eating carbohydrates? Carbohydrates are completely different. So carbohydrates are absorbed through the intestines and then they go through the liver and the liver will store it as glycogen. But when those glycogen stores are full, you still have extra glucose molecules that you cannot store any further. So the liver begins a process called de novo lipogenesis. De novo lipogenesis is the creation of new fat from energy sources that can't be stored, like protein and excess carbohydrates, once your glycogen stores are full. Essentially, the liver takes the glucose, takes the protein, packages into new fat, and sends it out into the blood, where it should be taken up by the fat cells. However, if you stimulate it too much and it's making too much of this fat, then it starts to accumulate in places where it should not. And you see it in uh, accumulating in the organs, so in the fatty liver and also in the muscle, as well as the pancreas. This is sometimes referred to as ectopic fat, or fat that's been stored in the wrong place. So experimentally, you can do this to human beings. You simply overfeed them carbohydrates. So one example is a, a study where they took uh, normal people and they gave them a thousand calories extra that is on top of their usual diet. And they gave them a very carbohydrate rich food. So sugary food snacks. It turned out to be some candies and some sodas and some, some snacks. What they found in this 2012 Finnish study, which we will reference in the show notes, is that even though body weight only increased by 2%, there was a 27% increase in liver fat. So demonstrating very clearly that excess carbohydrates is the key determinant of this. And you see the uh, fatty muscle problem very clearly in cattle. So again, cattle are herbivores. They normally eat grass, so they don't normally eat grain. When you want to have um, marbling of the beef, that's those streaks of uh, fat that you get within the muscle that make the steak sort of very delicious. Steak fat. Kobe beef, for example, the, very, the the Japanese delicacy, which is very expensive, has a lot of this fatty muscle. And the the, the thing to understand is that uh, how you get that, cattle ranchers understand very clearly, is that you give uh, refined grains to these cattle. So how does the liver get fat? Uh, same thing in the fatty liver. If you look at duck, so when they make foie gras, what they do is they shove a tube into the duck or the goose and they force feed it very high starch uh, mash. So it's the carbohydrates which drives the accumulation of this fat inside the, the muscle cells inside the liver. It's not the dietary fat. When we eat fat, we burn fat. And when we eat carbohydrates, we burn carbohydrates. And we don't burn fat. And that is why it accumulates. As you develop this, uh, this excess energy, so as you're storing all this fat inside the muscle, 
your muscles, which normally take in the glucose, are just now jammed full. It's packed. Muscle cells are functional tissue, so fat cells should store fat. The liver shouldn't be storing fat. The, the muscle shouldn't be storing fat. But when that cell, that liver cell, that muscle cell, that is now completely jam-packed, and you're trying to put in more glucose, it simply can't go in. But what you see on the outside is that the, the glucose is not going into the cell uh, under the influence of insulin. So you call it insulin resistance. The cell is protecting itself against too much energy by becoming insulin resistant. It's not a problem with the insulin receptor. It's not a problem with the insulin. The problem is that that cell, that liver cell, is already full of sugar and fat. And you can't jam any more sugar into that cell. So if too much energy is the problem, what's the solution? So that's what insulin resistance is. It's an overflow uh, problem. And once you understand that, you see that the solution is not to give more insulin, which is the solution that our body comes up with. That is, it doesn't like all that extra glucose circulating in the blood. So it increases insulin levels to jam it further into, uh, into our tissues. But it, the tissues are already full. Uh, when that doesn't work, you go to your doctor, your doctor gives you insulin to jam it in. And that uh, ultimately is self-defeating as well. The solution, if the problem is that the cells are simply too full, is to empty those cells out. So it's like a suitcase, for example. If you put some clothes into a suitcase, at first everything goes in nice and easy. But once it gets full, you can't jam those last two t-shirts in. So it's the same t-shirt that you packed before, it's the same uh, suitcase that you used before, but it's full, so you can't put it in. That's resistance, and that's what the insulin resistance is. You're trying to put glucose into a cell that cannot accept any more. So to get back to Elaine's question, if insulin resistance is not permanent, it must be reversible, right? Insulin resistance is completely reversible, and it only depends upon two things. One, stop putting glucose into that cell, and two, burn it all off. Get rid of all the clothes in the suitcase, and then you can put some more in. And that's the whole point. Now, insulin resistance itself is a process that develops over many years and probably many decades. So how long does it take to reverse insulin resistance then? If you're think that you can reverse that process in a couple of months, you're likely mistaken. So if you think about it, that suitcase is just completely full and it's in fact well past the point where it should be. Are you willing to do what it takes to get it all the way back down to normal? That takes a lot of fasting, a lot of strict uh, you know, dietary compliance over multiple decades. Uh, is it possible? It's absolutely possible, but it's, it's, it takes time and it takes effort. But in the end, it is reversible. So the, the important thing is to understand that insulin resistance is reversible, but it is a process that has taken many, many years or decades to develop and sometimes takes years or decades to resolve itself. If you go back to the diet that gave you insulin resistance, that is highly refined uh, carbohydrates, high sugar, high fructose, then you will develop it again. But it doesn't mean that the treatment was not correct. Just like the suitcase, taking clothes out of that suitcase is the proper treatment. And that's why some people say, well, this is a chronic problem. It can never be cured. 
Uh, that's not the case. It's just a matter of are you willing to put in the amount of uh, time it takes to reverse this condition. So if we could take one step, just do one thing to start reversing insulin resistance, what would Dr. Fung suggest? We keep uh, making it easier and easier for people to eat uh, sugar and glucose and fructose. We've made high fructose corn syrup very cheap. We've put it in all our foods. And I think that is one of the major, uh, major problems. I think fructose is far worse than glucose. So fructose, remember, is a sugar that is not metabolized by anything other than the liver, as opposed to glucose, which is metabolized by all cells in the body. So if you eat rice, for example, or, or wheat or potatoes, that's mostly glucose. When you eat sugar, it's half glucose and half fructose. And I think the fructose is many, many times worse for causing the real problem of insulin resistance. So if you're going to severely restrict one thing, it would be sugar and uh, high fructose corn syrup. Here's a question that Jason gets all the time. Isn't fasting just calorie restriction? If fasting works to reduce body fat, then aren't we just observing the calories in versus calories out theory of energy balance? What we're talking about here is really the difference between fasting and calorie restriction. So a lot of people ask the question, well, suppose I fast for 23 and a half hours, I only eat one meal in 24 hours, and then during that meal I eat a thousand calories. Well, isn't that just like a uh, caloric restriction of a um, thousand calories? So if you go from 2000 calories to 1000 calories, isn't that the same thing? And the answer is no, it's a completely different thing. The whole point of restricting calories is to restrict calories. The whole point of fasting is to lower insulin. So they actually have completely uh, different uh, purposes in mind. So to understand it a little bit further, we have to look into uh, a bit of the physiology. So remember that when you eat almost any food, unless you're eating pure fat, anytime you eat, your insulin goes up. As your insulin goes up, you tell the body to store food energy. Insulin tells fat cells to take up glucose and fat from your blood. It also tells fat cells to stop releasing fat into the blood. Insulin tells muscle cells to take up blood glucose. It also tells muscle cells to stop burning fat. Suppose that you take your 1,000 calories um, that you're going to eat and spread them evenly throughout, uh, you know, 50 meals throughout the day. So you're kind of eating constantly throughout the day. Every time you eat a little bit, your insulin goes up a little bit. Your body goes into kind of fat storage mode because it can't burn the fat. What we say technically is that insulin inhibits lipolysis, that is, insulin blocks fat burning because your body wants to store energy. That's the instructions that it gives it. So as you store energy, you get a thousand calories over that day, but you're not able to use any of your fat stores because you've kept your insulin high. Therefore, what happens is that your body only has a thousand calories over that day to uh, spend because that's all that came in through the food and it has no access to your fat stores. Therefore, body metabolism slows down to a thousand calories because you don't have any more. You have a thousand coming in from food because you're eating all the time and eating high insulin foods. You've completely stopped access to your fat stores and you only have a thousand to spend. 
So that's why your metabolic rate slows down on a calorie-restricted diet. Fat is very high in calories, so these diets tend to also be low-fat. Low-fat means high carbohydrate. That means high insulin. That means your body can't burn its own fat, so it turns down the thermostat to conserve energy. So that's what happens during calorie restriction, and that's what we've proven over the last hundred years. And, and the reason that uh, we make this sort of crucial error is because we don't understand that this is sort of a two-compartment problem. So I sometimes use that analogy in reference to glycogen versus body fat. But it also equally applies to when you're talking about food or stored food, which includes both glycogen and fat. You really can only go for either food or stored food, which is um, the, the two different compartments. We often think of calories as a single compartment problem. That is, all calories go into a single sink, and then all calories come out of a single sink. And there, it's running at the same time. That is, you're putting in food at the same time you can take out food, sort of like a giant uh, one-compartment sink. But that's not really the way it works. There are two compartments that you can access for food energy. One of these compartments is energy that comes from the food that you eat. The other is energy previously stored on your body as either glycogen, which is how the body stores glucose, or body fat. The twister is that we can only use one of these energy sources at a time. And guess what the switch is? That's what insulin does. It switches your metabolism. So if you look at the kind of uh, uh, the caloric kind of a constant calorie restriction, that's the problem. When you do intermittent fasting, it's completely different. So say you take that thousand calories of food energy, and now what you do is you take it all in a single meal. So for 22 hours of the day, your insulin is low. And for two hours of the day, say eating and, and immediately afterwards, your insulin is quite high. This is that th the way the body normally works. That is, hormones are normally pulsatile. They're not constantly high. So what happens is that as insulin is high, when you eat that one meal that you're going to have that day, that thousand calories, your insulin goes high, you store body fat. But because your insulin starts to drop after your meal, by the time you get into hour, say, uh, 8, 9, or 10 after your meal, your insulin has gone low. When insulin goes low, that's the signal now to burn some of that stored food energy. So now you're starting to pull out the glycogen uh, from your liver. And if you don't have any glycogen stores, then you're going to start burning body fat. But that's all in the category of stored food energy. That's the way your body stores food energy. So now you're pulling it out. So now if over that 24 hours, what's happened is that you switched from burning food to burning stored food. So you get a thousand calories from your food and you can pull another thousand calories out of your body fat. Now you have 2,000 calories to spend and your basal metabolism, which, which wants to burn 2,000 calories, stays high. Body temperature stays high, you have lots of energy and so on. So imagine you have a railroad and if, if you imagine the, the railroad switch. Your body can either go on one track or it can go on the other track. And there's a switch that switches it from one track or the other. But you can't, that, that train can't take the same track at the same time. Remember, the two tracks are two sources of energy. One is the food you eat, 
and the other is energy stored on your body in the form of glycogen and body fat. Physiologically, it's a completely different situation between constant calorie restriction and the situation with intermittent fasting. This is the reason why obesity is really a very time-dependent problem, because persistently high levels of insulin over long periods of time are going to lead to insulin resistance. This will develop over many, many years and sometimes decades. But the problem with insulin resistance is that it will stimulate the body to compensate by producing more insulin. If your insulin stays high all the time, then you're going to drive uh, the body to, you, to, to block off the sort of fat stores. And therefore, you're going to only be able to use the food energy. And this is the problem why uh, people who have been overweight for many, many years just find it much harder to lose weight. If you have been obese for uh, two months, that weight will generally fall right off if you apply yourself and get rid of it. However, that same weight, if you've had it for 20 years, is just stubbornly hard to get rid of. So if being insulin resistant for longer makes it harder to lose weight, what does that imply for our children? The situation is that a lot of children are now becoming more obese, and this is going to be a problem later on because when they get to middle age, they're just going to have a lot more problems getting it off than if they were to, uh, to not have had that problem until their kind of mid-30s kind of thing. So this is why childhood obesity is such a problem because it is going to be in the future an even bigger problem because that sort of obesity almost drives itself. That is, when you become insulin resistant, that's going to lead to high insulin levels, which is going to lead to more weight gain which is gonna to lead to more insulin resistance. So you need to break that cycle. And one of the ways to break that cycle is through the practice of fasting. A good friend of mine whose sugar was over 600 told me he couldn't go low carb because it was hard on the kidneys. And his kidney numbers were abnormal. Likewise, when I was in my 20s, I was told by a nurse that low carb works but the long-term effects on the kidneys, quote, were not known, unquote. That was enough to scare me away from low-carb for a long time. So let's ask Dr. Fung, a kidney doctor, what are the effects of a low-carb diet on kidneys? One of the questions that we always get is a question about chronic kidney disease. Um, and I'm a kidney specialist. I've been a kidney specialist for about 20 years now. And this question has been uh, really looked at in fairly extensive detail, but nevertheless is one of the big concerns. So let's go back and see what the, the problem is. In uh, people with chronic kidney disease, we often recommend that they avoid eating extremely high protein diets. And there's a number of theoretical reasons why that may be true. It may be that, for example, the excess the dietary protein creates a lot of this, these waste products. To use excess amino acids for energy, we have to first turn them into carbohydrates. So we need to remove the atoms that are not carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. Amino acids all have amine groups containing nitrogen, so one of the steps is to deaminate the molecule by removing the nitrogen atom inside a molecule of ammonia. 
Now, ammonia is toxic, so we need to turn it into urea and filter it out of circulation into urine to be excreted from the body. Nitrogenous waste products are not flushed out if your kidneys are not working properly. There's also a concern, for example, that if you eat a lot of protein-rich animal foods, you may acidify your blood a little bit, and if your kidneys aren't working, the kidneys can't neutralize the acid. But keep in mind that these are all theoretical concerns. So many years ago, we did a very large randomized controlled trial called the MDRD study, and this looked at the question of people who have existing kidney disease, whether or not eating low-protein diets was beneficial. And the answer was a very big surprise to most, and it seemed that it made very little difference whether you ate sort of a normal uh, protein level or an extremely restricted protein level. So keep in mind, again, that the sort of uh, general recommendations for people is to eat somewhere around 0.8 to 1 gram per kilogram of lean weight. And once again, you have to realize that this is not the total weight of the food. It is the sort of protein weight, which uh, you have to make some adjustment for. So keep in mind uh, of those of those issues. But 0.8 to 1 gram is what it was. So where did this recommended daily intake of protein originate from? So the way that they came to this number was that in the 1960s, 1950s, they were trying to uh, determine the recommended daily amount of food that you have to take. So at the time, they actually had no idea how much protein people should or should not be eating. And if you look across nations, there are some nations that eat a lot of protein and some nations that eat very little protein. So some are predominantly vegetarian, eating lots of carbohydrates. Others, like the United States, are eating a lot of protein. So what they decided to do for all the nutrients, not just for protein, but for calcium, for everything, really, they took a sample of people, healthy Americans, and they recorded what foods they were eating, and they decided that, well, they found the average was actually about 0.6 grams per kilo, and keeping in mind that people were completely normal and healthy at that level, 0.6. Then they added two standard deviations because they thought, well, it's really hard to eat too much protein. So we want to make sure that everybody eats adequate protein. So we're going to put that up to 0.8. That was a level that 90% of Americans were not eating that much protein. And they said, well, you should try and eat 0.8 with the idea that it's better to eat too much rather than too little protein. So that's how our recommended daily allowance became somewhere around 0.8 to 1 grams, depending on who you ask and so on. This has since been experimentally shown in nitrogen balance studies and summarized in the meta-analysis from Rand et al. 2003, entitled Meta-Analysis of Nitrogen Balance Studies for Estimating Protein Requirements in Healthy Adults. They found that people were able to remain in nitrogen balance between 0.3 and 1.0 grams per kilogram of body weight, with an estimated average requirement of 0.65 grams per kilogram and a recommended daily intake of 0.83 grams to be adequate for 97.5% of people. 
it's not very far off from what uh, an average American might eat. So again, if you eat a lot of meat, then perhaps it's a little higher. If you eat not so much meat, perhaps it's a little lower. When I started my low-carb journey, my doctor told me, and I'm quoting here, I have seen patients absolutely wreck themselves on a low-carb diet. She was talking about complications from over-consuming protein. So where did the idea of low-carb equals high-protein come from? Now, what happened was that during the Atkins sort of phase, uh, Atkins was very much a sort of low-carbohydrate proponent. But at the time, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there was this huge sort of um, anti-fat message, this, this sort of hysteria that fat was really, really bad for you. So even though Atkins was sort of a uh, low-carbohydrate kind of proponent, at the same time, when it got mixed with this whole low-fat message, there was this offshoot that was like a super high-protein diet. Oh, you should eat, instead of 0.8 grams per kilo, oh, maybe you should eat 1.5 grams, 2 grams, 3 grams, 4 grams. And it's not to say that you can't do well eating that much protein, but everybody's different and people may not do that well, but you don't, you don't need to eat that much. However, when you start going into artificial foods like whey protein concentrates and, um, you know, creatine powders and so on, you can get into trouble because now you're getting into totally artificial situations and you're getting away from the core message, which is eat real food. Uh, what becomes clear is that when you um, analyze large populations, so when they did these dietary studies, they looked at people who had normal kidney disease. So kidney disease is divided into sort of five stages, one being the normal and five being um, the worst uh, dialysis. So if you're stage one, two, and three, they looked at whether or not high protein diets actually cause kidney disease. And the answer was very clear, no, it did not. Your body has the ability to excrete that excess protein if it doesn't need it. It doesn't cause kidney disease. Now, if you have kidney disease, we know from the MDRD study that eating a lot of protein doesn't really make the kidney disease get worse faster. Now, they weren't eating the super high, the one and a half, two grams uh, a day. They're eating kind of normal 0.81 gram per day. One of the big changes when we get to a ketogenic diet from a sort of standard Atkins diet, so remember this sort of modified Atkins became low carb and low fat for a little while, thinking, oh, let's just eat a ton of protein. Uh, then the ketogenic diet movement in the last few years moves more towards sort of high fat just to contrast itself with the low fat. But again, it's not artificial fats that we're talking about. We're not talking about vegetable oils and so on. We're talking about natural fats, high in natural fats. So does protein cause kidney disease? If you don't have kidney disease, it doesn't cause it. If you do have kidney disease, it doesn't make it worse. So no, you don't have to worry about uh, eating a lot of protein as long as you're sticking to real foods. But on the other hand, um, the sort of diets that I recommend uh, tend to be moderate in protein that is still sticking to around 0.8 grams per kilo per day, cutting down the carbohydrates and replacing that with natural fats. And finally, let's end this show with some practical tips from Megan Ramos, Director of the Intensive Dietary Management Program. 
What are the most common hurdles your patients face when starting a regimen of ketogenic dieting and fasting? First is the thought that fasting and not eating six times a day, but actually fasting is okay. Um, and then just the whole paradigm shift from uh, low fat to high fat. And then telling the person to eat fat till they're satiated is, <laughs> that's just like pushing them off the cliff there. They don't know how to handle that. So that's something we struggle with a lot, both Dr. Fang and I and our other colleagues, just having people accept that, hey, I can eat this fat and I can actually feel full and it's not a dietary and it'll actually lose weight. So if you're out there and you're fasting and you know you're taking in enough electrolytes and you know that you're not overdoing it with your with your training meals on your fasting days and you're not taking stevia and you're struggling to get through the fast, well, maybe try eating a little bit more fat. One of the things we hear Megan talk about a lot is the importance of salt. Most people don't realize the importance of salt. Salt's been so crucified out there by by just about every major medical authority globally, but salt's important. You guys need to keep in mind that on your ketogenic diets or your low-carbohydrate diets, you're not eating boxed or canned or bagged frozen foods, none of this garbage, none of this processed stuff that's just so loaded with sodium. And you're not eating every day either. And your body, for years, adapted to having these crazy high sodium levels from all this processed food that you ate nonstop from sunrise to sunset, day in and day out. Your body adapted to having a whole lot more sodium in it than it actually required. And now you're virtually giving it none. And so, you know, symptoms of low sodium levels and nausea, vomiting, headaches, confusion, loss of energy and fatigue, restlessness and irritability, you know, feeling weak, getting cramps, even having seizures. Um, sodium is so, so, so important. And sodium, it plays a huge role in your nerve and muscle function. It, it's actually vital for survival. When I tell people that sodium is vital for survival, they look at me like I've got eight eyeballs. You know, they're just so fearful of it, but it's it's crucial. It's, it's absolutely important. And most people who are struggling with fasting, feeling fatigued, having headaches, feeling nauseous, if you just increase your salt a little bit, then those symptoms seem to subside. And that's our show for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. You can hear more episodes and read more about our panel of experts online at obesitycodepodcast.com. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time. Thank you.